When I think about you know, weighing the cost-benefit analysis for education, I, I don't know that I can do that because I think you just have to do you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to No Fat Cats, where we help high-performing creative teams get even better. I'm your host, Wesley Dean, and thanks for joining for another episode. If you had been following along, you may have noticed that a little bit of a radio silence there uh, with the podcast. Um, so I had recorded my podcast with Mike um, and then went on, on vacation, uh, took off towards a tour out west. But on the way, I had my audio recorder. I was planning on being able to record some podcasts. And um, I had it in a Pelican case that was attached to a, a hitch haul kind of behind the uh, behind our vehicle. Uh, but the first day into the trip going from Virginia to Ohio, the uh, somehow the Pelican case was too close to the exhaust. And the combination of the exhaust and the, the battery pack in the, in the Pelican case caused it to uh, catch on fire, <laughs> destroying my audio recorder. Um, so it just kind of threw a whole whole loop into the whole podcasting when you don't have an audio recorder. Um, but I have since uh, got one, came back with a, a lot of clarity after the trip out west and uh, refreshed and ready to, to kick back in and start things again. And uh, so jumping back into things with my conversation with Mike Jones, who is a great friend, uh, you know, mentor, filmmaker, who I've worked with, volunteered with, and... In my conversation with him, we explore the role that education plays in your career. So Mike went to film school. He did the whole very intensive year thing, um, and it's been played a very important role of where he's at today. I've learned a lot from him as a result of the fact that he went from film school. I, on the other hand, did not go to film school. I picked a lot of it up. I was just around people who were constantly doing filming. Um, and so we've kind of both worked our way into somewhat similar careers, but gone about it in a different way. And I think I, I wanted to record this episode in part to help people who are thinking through, should they go to school or not? Because even on my end, I'm trying to question like, well, what is that next degree? Do I get, do I get an MFA? Do I um, get a, go to filmmaking for my, my, my master's level degree? And so I've been wrestling with that too, about what my next educational move looks like. And I'm sure there are also a lot of people out there who have wrestled with what that's like. You know, do I just do online courses? Do I, how do I grow? And I think the big thing is we always need to be learning and you need to find what's best for you. And so my hope is that with this conversation, you'll come away with a few key takeaways of how you're going to go about your educational journey with the most important part being that you still just keep learning, keep growing and always getting better. Without further ado, here's Mike Jones. Hey, Mike. Jones, it's great to have you on the podcast. I know uh, when I got started, you were one of the people who was kind of in the back of my mind a little bit, um, as you're definitely one of the guys I very much look up to, and you very much work in the creative space, and you have just a, a breadth of knowledge and background, whether it's you know, film school or um, the work you're currently doing now. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Wesley. Thanks for having me. No, well, I know uh, it's hard to believe that it's been uh, you know, almost nine, nine, ten years ago that we met. Um, but I don't think we've ever officially, you know, recorded a podcast together. Or I've heard some of the details about the background with your story. And so I would you know, just love for for our listeners to hear a little bit about what it was like for you getting into where you're at now. I know you've at times, uh, you know, taken a little unconventional approach to get to where you are now. I think uh, not as many people who I know who are in the filmmaking space. 
guys. Uh, started off, I think, in the Army, I believe, and then worked in tech. Um, but, yeah, so could you just kind of recap what uh, what was that journey, career journey been like like for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm 47 now, so I've got a little life under my belt. Um, and, you know, my journey into media production, I think, is one more about a faith walk than it was a cognitive decision that I made. And I think that's just the way life goes for me. Uh, I remember when I graduated from high school, I had a goal in my head that I wanted to have a six-figure income by the time I was 30. So that was about the aspirations that I have. Of course, I was wet behind the ears and, you know, right out of school, it's like, oh, I'm going to conquer the world. But I ended up spending my early career in sales. Uh, I did some over-the-road trucking uh, sales and leasing. Uh, My first photography job was actually at a portrait studio working in a uh, retail store. And I I enjoyed that so much, just capturing people in life. Uh, I remember I had a repeat customer to come back. He'd come back once a month with a new tattoo he wanted a picture of. And that, that, that was his whole photo, you know, his whole photo biography that he'd send to his kids. So uh, I just really enjoyed that, even though it was a very small toe in this product, in this creative production side of the house. I moved on to assistant manager positions at like big box sporting goods stores. Uh, along the way, I started a business with my, with my dad and another partner. Plus, like you were saying, I kind of joined the army to pay for college and then went to college and dropped out to relocate for a job. So it was just this really mishmash of career, but typically all around some sort of sales uh, background. Did I think, hey, I want to go into sales? No, I didn't. And absolutely Along that that sales journey, you find positions that seem like you have a title, ooh, assistant manager, but it doesn't really pay that much. You get great discounts, but you can't afford to buy them, you know? So I was raising my family. We were living out in Grand Junction, Colorado at the time, and it's not real cheap to live in Colorado. And we just couldn't make ends meet. And I remember my dad, I was on a phone call with my dad once, and he encouraged me. Uh, He goes, you know, you've always been good with computers. Why don't you think about getting some kind of tech work? So at this point, I'd just been doing sales. So I found a position with a company in Colorado Springs, which Grand Junction, Colorado Springs are kind of like the east and west coast of Colorado, right? So one's on one side of the mountains, one's on the other. So my family, we owned a townhouse. My family was still there. I took my two older children over to Colorado Springs. Uh, Actually, a funny side note, I actually went out and charged on a credit card and bought a Windows 95 machine so that I could learn how to support Windows 95 before I went to the interview. (laughs) So I buy this computer. I, two of my children uh, come, I get the job. Two of my children come with me and start living with my folks while my wife stays behind. She is a saint. Let me tell you all throughout the story, without the bride that I married, uh, I, I could not have done what I've done and been where I am without her. She's a rock for me. So my uh, and, two, and, and I'll yeah. definitely have to vouch for that as someone who's worked with her and met <laughs> her. Uh, definitely, <laughs> I think uh, there's definitely a blessing. Yeah, she is the rudder to my ship for sure. So two of my kids and, my, and myself, we went to... Um, Colorado Springs. I took this job. It was $6 an hour job. So it, it, I wasn't going to make big money. I was a long ways away from that six figure job I had dreamed of. Uh, my wife stayed behind, got the house done and sold. Uh, and then she joined me over there. But fortunately, I was pretty good with technology. So I moved up fairly quickly. A few years later, I was actually chief financial or not chief financial. I was the chief technical officer for a medical company. Uh, and right before my 30th birthday, guess what? I had a six-figure income, a company car. Things were looking really good. And I I really thought life was at a pinnacle for me right then. And then, of course, um, 
that changed, right? We had just pinned a deal on a brand new house. We sold our smaller house, bought this big one that was way too big, but in hindsight, but at the time I was like, oh, this is cool. We can afford this. And then 9-11 happened. And before I knew it, I was on the unemployment lines for nine months and we struggled. You know, we had just bought that house. It had, we turned it around before the ink was even wet and put it back on the market and had to sell it. All of that story to bring me to saying that I had a good experience in sales and technology to lead me into the next phase of my life there. After nine months of, of unemployment, my dad and I uh, started a rustic furniture business. And this will tie in a little later in the story, so stick with me here. We started <laughs> making rustic furniture. It was real creative, you know, following the grains of the wood kind of, of wood. Uh, and I took this kind of a sales role as well as a build role. So I was out hitting the pavement, talking to retail stores, trying to figure out how we're going to sell this. And ended up with my first big retail deal going through, I think it was three days after I got a call from another position I had worked in during that unemployment period, just trying things out. It was a um, recruiting job, which I totally stunk at. It was the worst job I've ever had in my life, not because of the people, because I just couldn't do the job. <laughs> and so I got a call from one of my coworkers from that place, and they said, hey, we just heard about a tech job at a company called Hewlett Packard, and I jumped on it. I needed insurance. I had three kids to feed. I was living with my parents. I wanted to get my own place. You know, it was like, okay, this is an opportunity for a restart. And I remember walking that building going, I'll never leave this willingly again. I'll never walk away from this. Well, at the same time, I was pretty heavily involved in my church, running a a weekly men's group out of my home. And two of the guys that attended that men's group, actually four of them were a part of the story, but two of them specifically here, were wanting to start a small production company in the town we lived in. And I talked with them from a sales and tech background on how they might think about launching their company. Well, that eventually led to them asking me to be a creative director on their production team, which I thought was fascinating, but I knew I couldn't leave my day job. So I told them, I said, why don't we go shoot a video together and see how we do? And that birthed what was going to be a DVD called Salmon on the Fly. I was the host and the director for it. And that weekend, it was a four-day weekend. My wife went up with me. It was a magical time in my life. I mean, I was fly fishing. I was on a river in Colorado. I was being filmed. I was giving instruction. I fell in love with this idea of production. And after that, our little company went on and we uh, did a lot, some local business advertising and stuff. We actually shot a piece for the Martha Stewart show. And we had one of the first online streaming men's Bible studies at the time. iTunes had just started allowing uh, users to stream video content. So we uh, started a, what was That's called, pretty cool. yeah, it was kind of fun. It was called the new, uh, the real life network. And, uh, we did just a weekly Bible study show streamed show. Well, a lot of story in between these happenings, I end up, uh, getting an opportunity for an interview in New Zealand, uh, for a higher level position with Hewlett Packard. So my wife and I, and there was a lot of story around this, like No way I have time to put in the box here. But we ended up going to New Zealand. Uh, We landed on the ground the first day. We met uh, a Kiwi. They call them Kiwis. Uh, If you're not familiar with New Zealanders, it's kind of a nickname. We met a New Zealander. And uh, that first day, and then we went on our way, you know, we went on and did all of our, um, everything we wanted to get done while we were in New Zealand and also did the interview. But what happened from that is the last two days we were on that trip, the guy that we met that very first day called us up and said, hey, I've got somebody I'd like you to meet. I think you'd have something in common with her. Would you mind coming to my place? Well, through some more God story, we ended up going to Auckland and meeting this gal. Her name was Beth Fussner. 
And uh, she shared with me about a ministry that she had launched called Inside Out Global. Well, Inside Out at the time. It didn't have the global annotation yet. And at Inside Out, uh, she works with inner city kids to help them tell their stories and teach them filmmaking in the process. And I thought, oh, that's a really cool thing to do. But I in no way attached myself to it because I was in tech and I wasn't going to get out of it. To, you know, I, I, at the end of the meeting, I felt like I really needed to just give her some words of encouragement. I felt the spirit pushing me that way. So I did so. And then she went on her way and we went on her way. It's probably two weeks later, might've been a week later, uh, I got a call from New Zealand and she said to me, what would you think about coming to New Zealand and teaching filmmaking as a missionary? And then also helping the local churches here with their technology. Mind blown, Right. <laughs> my idea of missions, and I knew you grew up in a missions household, right, Wes? Um, yeah. My idea of missions was you go to some third world country and you build somebody a house out of cement and then you leave. And that was missions. I didn't didn't cognitively know there was anything else to missions. So this just really short-circuited my life. It really did. Because I was like, I couldn't get out of my mind. It was on my heart. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I don't have any formal training. You know, you make all the excuses. Long story short, I did not get the position um, in New Zealand. Uh, however, I, we did spend a lot of, my wife and I spent a lot of time talking about what this would mean to become missionaries over there. And it really, I I just really had this, this interesting pull. So I started looking around and I challenged the Lord. Of course, I said, you know, well, here's all, here's my list of why I can't do this. And one by one, and some of them literally to the word I'd written on the page, he answered them. Through a, <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, it was amazing events that happened. I mean, to the point that there was nothing I could do. I mean, there really was, I had no other option. Every Everything was laid out for me. The last thing is I said, Lord, I can't do this if it's going to cost me my family. I, I won't do it. I can't do it. Came home after a conference that I went to with my church and, um, w- and my wife was there and, and I said, she goes, what's going on? I said, oh, I'm okay. Everything's fine. She stops me without any prompting and put her hands on either side of my face, she goes, whatever you decide to do, I'm going to be there with you. And I just, I bawled. I mean, because that was like the last bastion of hope I was holding on to to not change my life and keep doing this good job and blah, blah, blah. So uh, next day I went back to work, talked to my boss about it, got online and said, man, I wonder if there's a film school anywhere close. Turns out there's one just in Denver. So we're about a two hour drive from where I lived. And, but it started like, now, like, like it was, there was no thinking about it. I was like, either I had to do it or wait another year. And I knew that wasn't going to happen. So all that to say, I ended up uh, leaving that cushy tech job, took out loans to go back to school, um, and was in school five days a week, shooting films on the weekends. Um, it was an incredible experience. And, but I ended up, you know, when I got done with that, I ended up graduating. I had $60,000 in student loan debt, no job, and a calling to missions. Ooh, I'm in a real strong position now. <laughs> so we, we ended up selling our house. We liquidate, liquidated everything that we owned, moved into a borrowed RV, and started traveling to raise funds to go into full-time missions in New Zealand. Um, at the same time, I was working with a producer down south, creating a choose-your-own-adventure DVD series. We do have two of those on the market. Uh, and I was editing that while I traveled, but I wasn't getting income from it. It was a passion project. And I was also still doing uh, inside out missions trips to New Zealand and Australia at the time. Well, we spent, uh, I think it was seven to eight months of team building. Uh, and man, it came in like crazy. When we were done with that eight to nine months, we had a whole single church that was supporting us. 
<laughs> and I thought, oh, maybe this isn't about the destination. It's more about the journey here because more about the the journey oh, you went through. Yes, you went through film school and everything. Uh, so with funds everything. running out. And the borrowed the borrowed RV due back to its owners. We had to find a place and land, and I had to get a job. Well, through some more God encounters, we landed in Marion, Indiana, um, where I was able to move into a rent-free missionary home for a spell. I was able to find a job as a sub teacher, um, but the first day of classes at, as a substitute teacher, I got a call from a connection that I'd made, and they said, "Hey, I want you to come meet a couple guys that work at this place called Indiana Wesleyan University. They're looking to make a video for a grant proposal." That video turned into a part-time tech job and then became a full-time tech job, still not production. But during that job, I I heard that some folks here at the university were putting together a studio. I came over and volunteered my time, and eventually uh, they came over and recruited me to take over that production. And that's how I got into production full-time for a living. Wow. So it definitely was not kind of the, the straight uh, straight path that some people take. Not at all. Uh, but it sounds like it really was uh, quite the journey. As I think as you mentioned, maybe it wasn't so much the destination, uh, but about the journey. Yeah, it definitely was. Definitely put me on a track. Uh, you know, and I when we came off the missions, off trying to raise a missions team, one of my kids was ready to go into college. The other one was uh, Jinka Jr. in high school. So it was like, here we were. I had no idea how my kids were going to go to school. But I ended up getting the job. They paid for tuition for my kids to go to school. So they've been able to get their bachelor's degree. Uh, it's just been, It was just a phenomenal God thing the whole way through. And so, too, I'm curious to get your take on, on education. So in some ways, uh, you know, when I was thinking about the podcast, I was just really curious to have a conversation about what, what education looks like, especially in the creative space, um, is there's a lot of conversations currently about, you know, higher ed, the cost of higher ed, um, when should you go to school, when should you just learn a skill, uh, and I was really curious to see just what your thoughts were, because um, there are times where I think stopping what you're doing and going to school offers a change of pace that you just don't get from, let me watch a few videos on YouTube or take an online course while I'm doing everything else. But how much for your for your life do you think it was helpful to have that actual change of like location, change of routine, leaving your job to go to film school um, to accomplish like what you're doing like today? Yeah. You know, it, I don't know how I would have done it without my faith. Uh, it was a pretty scary journey at times because you're really forsaking what you know is secure, a secure job, insurance, you know, all those benefits. And, and it wasn't like I was some single guy running around with, with nothing to do, you know, with my time. Yeah. You had three kids. Yes. Yeah. Three, three kids, kids and wife. <laughs> mortgage, yep, dog, you know, the whole, the whole shebang. Um, but when I think about, you know, weighing the cost benefit analysis for education, I, I don't know that I can do that. Cause I think you just have to do you, you know, if, if I were to talk to even my students today, I'm, I'm currently writing a uh, production class. I'm going to be teaching that in a post-production class combination all online. And when I think about the students I'm going to have, you know, my own story, it's like, you know, I spent over $60,000 on an associate degree with nothing to show for it initially. Um, but then because I had that, it opened some doors that allowed me to get my bachelor's degree. And now I'm working on my master of fine arts degree, which is a terminal degree so that I can teach filmmaking. Um, but those, if one step didn't come before the other, and even though my associate's degree was expensive, my bachelor and my MFA degrees are for pennies because, because of where I work. So I slid into academia and it's made some of those dreams come true. Um, you know, the other thing too, on my end is working in higher ed degree is everything, right? If, if you don't have a degree, you can't move up 
in the company, so to speak. So, you know, by having a terminal degree, it's going to open doors that are allow me to teach. It's going to allow me to speak, do conferences, write papers, things that I just couldn't have done in academia before I had that certification or that degree. So my story is a little different in that way. However, I do work with a lot of different types of production people, a lot of which I met in film school. So when you think about just by having my degree, it's not going to guarantee that I get a job out working in, in production or in, in the real in the real world, if you will. Um, but it's it's also not for anything or not for everybody too, because production in the traditional sense, if someone thinks, well, I want to get into film and video, one of the initial thoughts you have is, well, I'm going to go work in Hollywood. I want to make big pictures. I, I want to be on the silver screen. I want to be famous. I want to work with the movie stars. Uh, but I think the the base of production work around the world is just like you and I, Wesley, where you just, it's small companies making, making small productions for a lot of clients. Uh, I think we work more on a regular basis than someone in a full-time production gig does, because when you, if you've ever toured the studio system or know anyone that's worked in the system, you're hired for a month's worth of production, and then you're unemployed until the next job comes around and you hope the next job comes around. So if you have the tolerance for that in your finances and your lifestyle, if you've got a wife and kids that are amazingly supportive like I have or like you have, Wesley, then then you can make a go at that type of business and you don't have to have a degree to do it. However, I think, you know, if, if well, just as an example, say you're single, you don't have attachments, you just want to get in the business, go out to Atlanta, go to LA, get a job on a crew as a beginner, you know, find, find an entry. Get that experience. Yeah, exactly. Find an entry-level position. But pay attention to that. You know, don't do it blindly. If, if you're interested in working in the camera department, try and get on in a beginning position with the camera department. If you want to be a director, try and get on as a PR, uh, uh, PA, a, a production assistant, and learn everything you can. That really becomes your school. Right. And so I think there's really the, the op- options that I think everyone has to write their own story. And it's not so much about, uh, you know, what worked for Mike Jones, what worked for Wesley Dean is going to work for me. But I think there's always great times where you can take pieces or take lessons. And in some cases, it might be that that jump of faith that, that you took that inspires someone um, or like the what they learn, whether at school or through a, through a class that you're teaching um, that can be. But I think the, the biggest thing is always to, to keep keep learning and um and not being afraid of to taking those leaps yeah and, and the first i remember the first day of film school when my professors came into class and he said if there is any other job you can do in the world quit now and go do it because this is a heartbreaker and a marriage destroyer this business <laughs> and of course when you're you know i was there well i'm a little wiser than that as you know i can do this and da 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 but but really it comes down to um you know, where do you want to go with it? What are you going to be satisfied doing? I mean, seriously, if you go and get on with a crew and you work hard, you show up early and leave late, you leave your smartphone in your car so you're attentive on set, you'll get noticed and you'll do work. That's just the way it works. You'll get jobs, you'll move into more and more responsibility, and you'll build that network by just being there in the business. Uh, you know, it's it's a career full of different types of job, but it's also a career full of unemployment and ups and downs. So you've got to have Smart finances. I, I remember one of your uh, podcasts I listened to, Wes, was talking about how, as an independent, we f- we make sure that we're financially secure, and and that is a business you have to do that in because it's flood and famine, right? Yeah, no, that was yeah, that was with a uh, Tom Gehar. I think yes, it was episode yes. three mm-hmm. or four. Um, but no, and that kind of goes too with, especially in the industry when 
you are working in the creative, especially filmmaking. Um, you know, at one point I talked to a guy who was like the DP of, I think he was, it was like a big, some big shows like, you know, the bachelor. And, um, and he was always like, Oh yeah, at times it's feast and famine and, you know, kind of shared. And so first you think like, Oh, well, you wouldn't, you think that, you know, as a like DP on a show who you'd say has made it, um, like primetime TV that he'd be all set financially. But I think at the same time, people can easily get a big job like that, increase their overhead and then continually have to just feed the beast that they're, uh, everything they're paying for. Um, yeah. so it's definitely, it can be a balancing act of, you know, making it, but making sure that your lifestyle doesn't increase to the point where you're not making it. You make, you make stupid decisions to buy big houses when you don't need them. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least for you guys, that was a good, good life lesson that hopefully you're yeah. able to, oh, yeah. uh, uh, early on and not you know right before retirement or something like that. Absolutely. But then, so I know, you have been doing your master's degree and I've heard a little bit about with your MFA. To what extent do you find that it's the network of people that you meet while going to school that are extremely valuable? Because, you know, that's the one thing that, you know, just watching some videos on YouTube doesn't necessarily introduce you to, to other people. Um, that, and I can say for sure that, uh, like in my end, I didn't necessarily study filmmaking, um, while doing undergraduate work, um, it was international relations and cultural studies. The people I met, there at school were extremely valuable to then. And the work I did as a student was extremely valuable for making some of those connections. They introduced me to people that definitely led to a lot of the work and led to where I am today with a number of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, How much do you find is that true? Is that hands-on experience, that interaction that is extremely valuable from education? Yeah. You know, I, first of all, start with a caveat. I love to learn, right? Um, I actually like school and learning. So my experience is going to be different from somebody that's not a a school person that's just ready to get out of school and never go back, you know, and you can make it in the business, but you're always in school. You're always going to be learning in this business. There's no getting away from it. Um, and again, I have to reiterate, I couldn't have done what I've done educationally without my family's full support. My wife has been a boon and a blessing to me for all of these crazy adventures. And she really did hold our family together. I mean, she did the real work of running our house, our finances, keeping our love tanks filled uh, while I was off doing crazy things like school and shooting films. Um, she also worked as a producer for me, which was immense. That's a skill set that I don't hold real dear to my heart. I, I'm more interested in the creative side of what I do, but she's the type of person that, you know, calls a grocery store and gets free food for catering and calls locations and gets them to give us free locations. I mean, it's crazy what, what her, um, personality is able to pull off from a production standpoint. So I got a little off topic there, but aside from that, uh, aside from missing my wife and my family during that time, school itself was amazing. I mean, I loved every class. I felt like it was all just some kind of fun dream I was getting to live in. Uh, from day one, we were shooting short films and really just making the magic happen. You know, uh, it was hard. Don't, don't get me wrong there. It was hard. The classes were three hour blocks. Uh, I'd get back to the place I was staying and be up in the night studying, but it was all fun stuff. It was like homework, like watch this film and give feedback on it. I'm like, well, seriously, this is school. This is the best, you know? I, I get to watch movies for school. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, so, so I would say even if I had to do it again, um, you know, even what you mentioned YouTube, when I was making decisions to go to film two, YouTube was only two years old. So YouTube launched, I think, in 2005, 2007 is when I, well, really 2006, I went to film school. So YouTube was just getting started. YouTube superstardom didn't even exist at this time. Uh, if you wanted to learn how to make films, you had books, um, you know, maybe some correspondence courses. 
uh, or on location film and video. You know, the course I'm in now with Asbury uh, screenwriting course is all online, but there was still a component of FaceTime, um, which we could talk about if you wanted to, just about how how video is working inside of education. But the 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 connections that I made with my professors, and most of them were Hollywood screenwriters. Some of them are living in LA right now. They're writing scripts, movies being made right now. So their experiences weren't like secondhand. It was all firsthand. And not only that, they brought their network to the classroom. So as students, we got to sit and talk and interview these people and ask them questions and and make connections with their networks. So even though I live in Marion, Indiana, a tiny town in the middle of nowhere, I now have... Uh, a good two handfuls of people I could contact anytime I needed to go to LA and just try and get, get things set up. You know, if, if I wanted, if I wanted to pursue that, that opportunity is there for me. It's knocking. Um, the other thing about film school, I just have, I got to put this out there. I'm not the first one to say it. You have amazing access to equipment when you're in film school. So if you have aspirations to make a film and you want to do an independent film, you look at what it costs to get equipment and gear and locations and people to make your film. You're hundred thousand dollars or better on a zero budget. You know that's considered zero. Yeah. I think like anything less than a million is a zero budget. You can go to film school for twenty thousand, have access to all the equipment and the people that you can imagine. You get uh, discounts on locations, if not for free, because you're a student filmmaker. Uh, you don't have to buy or rent all the gear. You've got actors that come to the film school that want to get experience with acting that are there. They'll do it for free. You've got a crew that's free because you're helping them on their. So you can. Make a hundred. You can make a hundred thousand dollar independent film just because you're a student in school paying twenty thousand dollars worth of tuition. Plus, you get a degree out of the deal. It's hard. To yeah, beat. no, I can, that's a that is hard to beat. And I can see where. And I think there is something fun about being in a cohort environment with everyone who is trying to learn. They're trying to to get more experience. Yes. They're trying to do some of the same things. Um, and you're just in it together. I think you get a lot of camaraderie um, in a situation like that that you just don't get when yeah. you're by yourself doing yeah. something. Well, the experience too. I mean, just in, I was there for 11 months. It was an advanced immersion course. Um, in that 11 months, I wrote and directed seven of my own films. One was a documentary that I actually shot in New Zealand. Um, I was on crew for over 30 different films and productions over that 11 months. Uh, two of those films that I was a part of went on to launch the career of those guys in independent filmmaking. Um, and then you, the other thing is you get that you don't want to discount is you get to sit on sets with a lot of different filmmakers and observe their style and how they do things and how they collaborate. And you learn a whole lot of do's, but you also learn a lot of don'ts. You know, don't make that yeah. mistake. Um, like don't bring sushi on a hot afternoon for a snack. It's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see that going wrong in uh, yeah. many ways. It was wrong in many ways, yes. No, it's, it's, that's really helpful to hear in terms of just that perspective. And I think that's always encouraging is that when you can listen to someone's story about what they've done, there's always just takeaways that you can think through. What does that look like for you? How does that apply to you? Um, and just like inspiring to hear about people's personal joys. I mean, people connect to people. And so, uh, that's, thanks for sharing that in that spot. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as, as you kind of mentioned, where do you think, where is education going in that mixture of video and education? You're kind of at the forefront in that, you know, working for a university, helping them with that space. Also doing an MFA program. Um, a lot of people are starting to do 
to do education. A lot of media is being created that is educational. I think initially people just, they saw a video and were like, oh, we can do promotional work. And then they realized that, oh no, actually there's a lot of value to being able to educate, be able to inspire um, as a part of a class setting. Um, where, do, where do you see things going? Where are they now? And where do you think things are going in the next five, 10 years with video in education? Yeah, it's a, it's a giant question. Uh, and and you kind of already answered some of it. So you mentioned YouTube. I'll just ask you, how many times have you gone just in the last month to YouTube to learn something? Yeah, it's like, all right, how do I do this? Yeah, and I think YouTube has definitely become a very, uh, really good at a, like, how-to videos Mm -hmm. uh, as some, some, some things are specific for that, um, where it's like, how do I do this? Like, there's probably an answer on YouTube for it. Yep. Um, but what do you think that looks like for con- for concepts that don't have as much of the how-to and aren't as visual? Um, yeah. Where do you see, how, th- how do you see things being used? Yeah, in, in, in the same way, honestly. I mean, but different, because you're nuanced and you've got research and history behind um, uh, the purpose of the videos that we do in education. So if, if you think about, a generation that's used to going to video to learn, right? Um, you've got Khan Academy that just exploded, and, and there's been a lot of people that go there to learn topics and get uh, what you know certificates now or badges. Badging is a big thing. You see on LinkedIn, a lot of people are endorsing each other. So, so it's not just about the education; it's about how much experience do you have with these tools. You know, as filmmakers, you and I, when we're looking, we may not necessarily look for a degree, but I want to know they know how to use After Effects and well, and I want to see they're real. Um, if they have experience and they've worked with other big productions, fantastic. That's even better for me. So as an educator, I have to think about what can I give a student that gives them an edge over the guy that's just watching YouTube, right? Um, and, and by doing that uh, and, and using the strength of online video, uh, I understand that there's instant access. I can deliver um, content that they can pause and rewatch if they need to. So it's not just a one-time lecture they have to scramble to write notes for. Um, it, it, when, when we think about video in higher ed, if it's done well, then it, it can, we can use it to, uh, well, let's, let me give an example. So I like to say that data and statistics are good for the written word, but story and relationships are going to be better built by video of some, so, of some sort, uh, especially in an increasingly online environment. So you have synchronous and asynchronous type videos. Um, there's a lot of tools out there. One of them is called Flipgrid that um, allows students to uh, respond via video. So we get some more feedback, and that's about relationship. Uh, let's look at that. Look at relationships. So you and I both done a lot of international travel for video work. And when we land at night, wherever we are, and we have internet signal, we could make a phone call, but more than likely we're doing a video chat. And why do we do that? Because we want to see our wife and our kids' faces. We want to see, um, watch them laugh. We want to see their smiles. We want to understand the nuances of their body language. And, And it gives us context to the conversation that we're having. Well, it's no different in a video classroom. As a teacher, I can begin to better understand my students and see when they're disengaged, uh, change or morph my delivery and teaching to re-engage them in topics. And I couldn't do that if I was just submitting written words to them every week. So it allows me to put my finger on the pulse of the relationship and I can be a human face. Even though it's digital, we're we're getting used to this technology now so we can build relationship over video chat. Another use that we're seeing come online in education is adaptive and branched video learning or game, what some people call gamification. So working in gamification, 
uh, one of the examples of a project I was able to do was we made a series of videos that we linked together with branch choices, which allowed our online social work students to make decisions based on what they saw in a situation, a situational video. And that those choices had good and bad outcomes. And if they didn't make the right choices, they wouldn't have the outcomes they needed to successfully complete this, this scenario. Take that to another level and you start looking at adaptive branched video learning. So the adaptive learning is when a student watches a scene and makes a decision. And if the decision's the right one, then the story continues on and they never know anything was happening. Uh, if it's the wrong decision, then the situation in the interactive story video changes to give them another shot at the right answer. Um, so I could, if it's, if it's the right answer, I could make the next one a little more in-depth, the, the response they have to have based upon their learning. If it's the wrong answer, I can back it off and make it a little more plain so they can catch on and see that, hey, things are going sideways here. Maybe I should make a different choice. So it allows them to have a good situational experience in a virtual place. Speaking of virtual, the next thing we're stepping into in education is this idea of virtual reality or 360-degree storytelling. I've seen it done really well only a couple of times, but the times I've seen it, it was super powerful. Uh, I think there's, I think it's called Charity Water. There's a, a video where you follow a teenage girl um, through a week of her life, although it's condensed and from a storytelling standpoint, but you understand uh, she's going to get water out of this, this pond and it's on 360 degrees. So I have 360 degree goggles I bought for like 20 bucks or something like that. And I just sat in my spin chair in my office and was able to spin and look around her world. And it was very experiential, um, just dropped me right into a place I'd never been to, an experience that I'd never had. So what if I could take that as an educator and literally put you in somebody else's shoes for, for a day? or a moment, or a situation. Say, a student uh, that we have is looking to teach grade school, and they have their upbringing and their background and the things that they've been through, and maybe it wasn't that rough. But what if I could put them in an abused child's morning routine right before they get to their classroom? Could that help make that teacher more empathetic, more understanding? Would they have a different approach for that student that's coming out of that environment if they could actually sit in their shoes for just 20 minutes one morning? I think that's where I see the power of educational video and storytelling in higher ed coming. As we get more and more used to being online and, and interacting in environments like this, I think that there's a powerful opportunity to take good storytelling. And, and you and I are experiencing this, even though we're uh, maybe a generation apart in our age, we're experiencing it at the same time where we're realizing the story is more important than the output. So I'm in conversations Definitely. with, yeah, I'm in conversations with, with educators at the school right now. They're saying, do we really need all this glitzy, fancy uh, videography? Because people are used to watching it on their iPhones. And, you know, I got two arguments. One is, well, even myself, if I go to YouTube because I want to learn how to change the brakes on my car, and there's one guy that's got just a camera with no microphone, I mean, just room sound, never changes the angle and he changes the tire, I could spend 45 minutes watching and playing that video back and figure out what he did. But you give me the same person that does a video with three or four camera angles with a good microphone so I can hear him clearly, guess what video I'm going to go back to when I need to do it again? And the, the one that was well shot. Yeah, yeah. So I think we don't we can we can use what we know about filmmaking and storytelling, even if the equipment's our iPhone. So, so the last two video packages I did, I shot on my uh, my iPhone 
11 that I picked up. And I just used its on-phone microphone. Crazy, I know. It's like, what? But I wanted to see if I could do that and still have a quality, high-definition video for little short promos that we do for our live show here on the university campus. And it worked perfectly. I didn't have to carry a bunch of gear. I just pulled my phone out of my pocket. We walked through it a couple of times. We shot it. I edited it. It's out the door. And nobody cares. Yeah, but it was it was the because you had the skill set to, yes, yes. to be able to do it. Yeah, so I knew how to move the camera. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted, you know, and I had a good editing platform. But but all of that to say, you know, where where we're going with educational video and storytelling, why I think it's important is, is as you and I know, working with Inside Out, somebody's personal story is life changing and powerful. Uh, being a part of educating, and, and it's kind of where I'm heading right now, even though I'm getting a screenwriting degree, I wouldn't mind selling a screenplay, but I've been doing production long enough now, I think I can add value to somebody's life by uh, teaching them what I know. And I think that's our legacy, right? To pass on what we know to the next generation. And so that's really where my heart has landed in production. So I hope to be able to be a practitioner teacher and take that into retirement. Why do you think, especially in education, there is a lot of value in helping people see like how how it's easy it is to remember stuff or remember content if it's put into story format where you can there's like something's going on there's a problem they're working to overcome it um there is something about that story arc that just makes it magical for for remembering it's just so much easier to remember something um and it's impactful when it is kind of put in the story format um mm-hmm. and that, that doesn't always mean having you know fantastic uh, like high production values though in some cases it does but it's being able to leverage that story to help people learn um and you know recognize yeah there are times where that all people need is a simple how-to video on how to do something but mm-hmm. at times as you, I think a great example you put up is like for a teacher, it's like, sure, you can't always learn about child psychology, but if you could actually watch a video and feel what it's like for a student who's being, you know, abused at home, whether verbally and physically before going to school, and you all of a sudden feel that emotion, like you connect with that person on that way. And that all of a sudden makes you a more empathetic teacher right. um, now that you understand like what they're going through to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, I think so, it has so, a lot. Of that's potential. a good point. I I hadn't really thought about that, and uh, but I do think it is interesting to see where things are going. Um, you know, as you mentioned, considering just you know YouTube two thousand five just got started in two thousand five, and I think no one had any idea of where things were going. And um, it'll be interesting to watch as more and more people go from hey, we could record a lecture of someone mm-hmm. presenting something, which is obviously like a first step to um, taking it to the next step even further. Yeah, definitely, and you know. To- Throwing back to the film school education idea, too, I, I remember when we, you and I first met at an Inside Out workshop. Well, I met through your parents. I called you, hey, would you be interested in doing this type of thing? And so I think our first one was New Zealand, wasn't it, together? No, so the first one was in Washington, D.C. It was in D.C. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. So we did that up there. But I came to that and sat you guys as filmmakers down and said, here's a production workflow. Here's what it looks like. We're going to do shot logs. We're going to do uh, storyboards. We need to do scene planning worksheets. And you guys, a lot of you guys hadn't seen that stuff before. Yeah, I had never uh, worked on something like that before. So so I definitely owed uh, a lot of that to you for sure. <laughs> so, but I hadn't either. And it was film school that gave me that. So I was able to take that very complex production workflow for a feature film, which is what I learned, and condense it down to how do we do this in one week with kids that have never touched a camera. And so you have to be very efficient and efficiency means less dollars on a film set, either whether it's your film or somebody else's. So I was able to take what I learned in school, bring it to 
that environment and teach it to you guys as filmmakers so that we could all be on the same page. And then when you had one day to shoot an entire short film, you were able to be successful because the planning was done up front. But again, I wouldn't have had that knowledge had I not gone to film school and spent that money and then brought it to share with the people that I was around. So I think that we are going to always be students in this business, and we're going to always need to have mentors and people that have been there and done that. And there is a baseline education that can help you succeed in this business, but it does not going to guarantee you the job. Guaranteeing the job is either being able to work hard and save your money and finance for the ups and the downtimes, uh, or to be brave enough and have the support system like you did to launch your own production company and just give it a go. And I, and I think too, as you mentioned, it is those mentors, it is those people that you can learn from, who can give you advice, who can uh, go to bat for you or recommend you to somebody else uh, that can really make the difference. And I think that's probably something that at film school you'd gain in terms of just that network of people that when people are looking for, hey, I need someone to do camera or someone to be a, a screenwriter or, you know, you just when you have... When people come to mind because you worked with them before, um, that just builds a lot more credibility and they're going to come to mind when it's, they're looking for someone next. Yeah, yeah. And and if you do that, you set yourself up for success because you, you get to know things and know people. Uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes, if I have a regret, uh, it wasn't realizing how important the networking was when I was in film school initially. I thought, I'm just going to get in there and learn it. I'm working with a bunch of, you know, a lot of people that were a lot younger than I was in the game. And I just didn't see the value. I networked with a couple of the older students. um, But since then, I've watched these teams from film school collaborate and do amazing work together. And I just didn't, didn't have the effort to plug into them. I had a family. I had my life. I had my church. I had my men's group. I had, you know, I had my things. I didn't need more people. And I didn't realize I really did need more people. Well, this run through college, that's a whole different story. I mean, we've, I've got a writing group that we formed from three or four of the students that went through this program with me. One of, uh, one of us, one of them and I are working on a feature uh, script together that we want to pitch. So I got a lot more out of it the second time around. Um, one of the things we got to do was go to LA for two weeks in my coursework. Uh, we set up meetings. We met producers. We sat inside studio systems. Um, we had the pros in their in their environment guiding guiding around those systems. Got to sit in the Walt Disney soundstage. Got to walk free form all around Warner Brothers Studios. Um, you know, the access was unprecedented. Never would have got that experience if I hadn't been enrolled as a student in this course. But I also met a ton of people I could add to my proverbial Rolodex. Um, and keep start building relationships with because I never know when those are going to come back around. And I feel like that's just a good advice in general is that uh, yeah, a big part of what you're going to school for isn't just the the book knowledge or the you know pixel knowledge or sound knowledge, but uh, it really is meeting people and getting connection to people mm-hmm. um, that, that you can't you can't really replicate that anyway besides that um, that face like that connection, that bonding time, spending intentional time with people. Um, and I think that's something too that uh, with things and you know the rise of social media is that there's been a lot of short likes and comments, um, but there's no way that's going to be a replacement for that intentional, like deep personal connection that we have with people um, and that yep. you get um, through spending quality time with people. Yeah, FaceTime is important. Yeah. Hey, Mike. Well, it has uh, been great having you on the podcast. I know I've you know learned a lot from you and uh, have taken, taken away a few ideas from this as when it comes to education and what that looks like. And I think there's going to be a lot of amazing stuff coming up over the next 
well, next cycle is we're almost entering kind of a new phase of you know literacy in, yes. in, in some regards with this this video medium. But um, any other uh, lasting thoughts, or do you have any uh, tips if people want to get a hold of you or want to connect or learn? Uh, is there any way for people to get a hold of you? Yeah, um, it, my email address is parablepictures at live dot com. So if someone want to reach out to me, I check that daily. Um, you know, it, and I would just say, do what's true for you. You know, if you're interested in production work and getting in this business, um, it, it is, it's, it's a marriage killer. I know uh, even a lot of the folks that I met out in LA are two second, third marriages. Um, and my wife and I have survived it, but it's not always been easy, you know? And I think you just have to be happy with making ends meet sometimes. You, know, you have to be, have joy in doing a job that you love to do. Um, I don't have aspirations to be famous. I'd rather not have paparazzi taking pictures of me every time I go in the backyard. Um, and I don't have a million dollars in the bank, but I really am in a good place. So I get to be home at night with my bride and my family. I get to see my grandchildren grow up. I still get to travel doing missions work, uh, in mixed media production. I get to network with great people like you, Wesley, and, and the groups that we've met over the years doing Inside Out together. Um, so I, I think, I think you just have to, to really know yourself enough that if you want to get into this business, that, that you've got the support system you need behind you to support you not only emotionally and physically because it can be exhausting and demanding work but spiritually too i think i think it it can be a very dark business at times so i would just make sure you've got good prayer support you know if you're not a believer and you're listening to this podcast uh find find somebody that's got your back in whatever capacity that is because you're going to need them no, it sounds like this. Great, great advice for sure. Good advice for sure. Uh, Mike, well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation and uh, thanks so much and uh, look forward to next time we get to work together on something. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Wes. It's been a joy. It's been a joy. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Well, that wraps up another episode of No Fat Cats, where we help high-performing creative teams get even better. I'm your host, Wesley Dean, and thanks for tuning in. I know I really enjoyed hearing Mike's story, his definitely roundabout story to getting to where he's at, but I think with all life, it's not so much about the destination, but the journey, and Mike definitely has a lot to share of highs and lows with the journey to where he's at and where he's going on. And um, I know I definitely enjoyed thinking about education, where it's going when it comes to learning to media to the power of story to help people um, make things more memorable and also at times you know I liked his line where it's like data you know data and numbers are best for the written word but story and relationships are better for video and uh, at times people will try to think oh I need a video I need a video when no you don't really need a video for this um, but it's our role as people who work in the creative space to help people know when what tool they need for what they're doing and uh, that's why it's always good to be aware of the different elements out there, what you can be doing and how you can help make things engaging uh, for people, help them learn, help them get better and uh, keep moving onward. So thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Fat Cats. Until next time, have a good one. And hopefully my audio recorder won't burn up until next episode. All right. All right.